So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I'm Rico Shields, and thousands of miles away, today, this morning, this, this taping, she's behind me, Jean Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm good. I'm waking up. That's slowly. good. <laughs> it's a it's a morning taping for us. It's a, I don't know what now is now for you guys that you're listening, but it's a it's a morning taping for us because we have a guest from across the pond. That's uh, one of the great flexibilities of this podcasting that uh, we can be flexible with our time and and get in so many more guests that we haven't been able to have before. Um, but yeah, Jean's behind me this morning. It makes me a little nervous. Don't let Jane sneak up behind you. With a, oh. Oh, getcha. Yeah. <laughs> could could do. Could do. And she sneaks around very quietly. She's a little thing. Five foot of, you know, little, but but lots of fire in there. It's that Phoenix thing, I guess. Fire, Phoenix thing. I don't know. Must be. Fire? Must be. Must be, don't know what to banter about this morning, though, dude, because I'm still waking up. <laughs> yeah, well, and we just we just taped a show last night, so it's it's been less than about 12 hours since we taped, so haven't had much time to look at the news. Um, you know, we could talk about the craziness hither and yon, because that's always in the headlines, but uh, I saw something. But that, why? <laughs> yeah, right. Why would you want to you know talk what? about that? Let's talk about... Let's talk about what our guest just introduced us to. Did you know? See, Rick just found out for our listeners, and you should check this out because it's really cool. Apparently, in Costa Rica, where Rick is now living, there's a peace university. And I find that rather fascinating. I find it... A university ex- dedicated to teaching uh, teaching people the value of peace. Of peace. In cultures and, um, and society. Founded in 1980. And, and I, I guess it makes sense. I mean, what, 1948, Costa Rica disbanded their military, did away with it, said we don't yeah. want to do that, play that game anymore, and have proven that, you know, neighboring countries can have, like, I guess it was Nicaragua. or Anyway, somebody started taking land. They just brought their soldiers and started, crossed the border, started taking land and and uh, rattled their saber, sabers and told Costa Rica, you know, we're taking it, and if you don't want us to, you fight us for it, and and Costa Rica said, no, I don't think so, and, and, and took them to the international court over in The Hague and won, and 
and Nicaragua just said okay and backed up. It like they they were so I think it's because the vibration was so unified in we don't fight that there was nothing there for the Nicaraguan military to push against. So they went away. But um um and so then in 1980 now they've started this University of Peace. It, you can find it at upeace the letter u peace.org. If you want to check it out, I'm certainly going to check it out because that might be worth a field trip to go interview somebody for the show. Because, wow, you know, what do you people think in having a university for peace? You want to teach people peace? What? Because <clears throat> they've got war. <laughs> they have war colleges all over the place in other places. We have several of them in the States, and they have war colleges, in, I think, in the UK. and All around the world. Yeah. So Absolutely. There are entire systems dedicated Strictly to killing people. <laughs> right, in, in the most efficient manner possible. And, um, Absolutely. And um, so I, I find it very encouraging. that, uh, And it started in 1980, and I graduated high school in the class of 1981. I could have gone. Who knew? I'd have gone for that. I, I, I was kind of right? turned off. Yeah, I was turned off by my options in the States, but that would have been fun. But uh, we we... We banter along about our guest. We might as well just bring him on. We're both trying to wake up. It's Gene's busy trying to wake up at 10 a.m. It's 8 o'clock here in Costa Rica, so, you know. Oh, he ratted on me. Yes. Yeah, I, I ratted. In. She forgot to set her. She forgot oh. to, well, she forgot to set her alarm clock, folks, and, and, and then she woke up because the phone rang once, and it seemed strange. She, she thought it was me. I think it was George because I, I, I know it wasn't me. Um, because at the time yeah. that that happened, I was I was standing in front of the coffee pot, wanting to know why it takes so long. I don't have my little one cup fancy thing because we don't do that down here. We just have coffee bankers and and extraordinary coffee. I must say. Of course, they, it's so strange, but that's um quite honestly the life that I live now is that I generally get up and. My body tells me it's time to get up, which can range from anywhere from like 6 a.m. Those mornings are fun to 9 to 10. And then when I do get up, I'm wide awake. When I wake up naturally like that, I'm wide awake and I get tons done all day long. And it's awesome. Yeah, there is something to be said for when tired, lie down. And when waking, stand up. There, I don't know, something about that. But... Um, mm-hmm. We do. I was up late last night editing audio, or I probably would have just left to my own devices. I wake up about five down here in Costa Rica. Of course, that's, I have the morning coffee appointment at five thirty with the the capuchin monkeys, and I missed them this morning. I didn't get up in time. They're probably talking about me like people talk about the other gringos down here that don't get out of bed because everybody around here pretty much goes to bed when it gets dark and they get up when it gets light and they're less like that's how that works what are you doing over there in bed <laughs> and what are you doing awake it's like 8 p.m. we're all in bed because <clears throat> it's it's roughly 6 to 6 the light around here or 5 a.m. to 6 I don't know sunrise is like sunrise and sunset pretty much 5 30 5 30 Almost year-round, because we're, what, eight degrees north of the equator or something, where I am? Down south here. 
you know, lived in the mm-hmm. south in the United States. I live in the south in Costa Rica. I'm just one of them one from the south people. Oh. Oy vey. No characters this morning to early for that? Guess. He's awake. <laughs> Jeans had enough of me, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for time for moving on, and that's probably a good thing. Now we have we have with us this morning, uh, joining us from Germany, a um, well, my goodness, do the do the introduction thing. He's done so many things. Um, William's been uh, a warrior. He's been a uh, still is a um, teacher, um, English creative writing in the U.S. and uh, Fulbright in Europe, uh, and and currently um, an adjunct professor of American studies at the University of Oldenburg in Germany. So, um, William T. Hathaway. Good good afternoon, William. How are you? Nice to be chatting with you across the Atlantic Ocean here. Pretty good. Good. And awesome. What you're saying about the Peace University is so important um, that uh, that be recognized as an academic discipline and something we need to learn. <laughs> peace is not the kind of thing that that we automatically respond to. We need to learn how to do it, and and I think we can. Um, it's not easy, but uh, it's going to take a lot of changes before we actually can manage that. But we got to make those changes. Absolutely. And I think a large part of it has to do with the fact that we've really built our social structures and our economic structures around war. So we just don't know any other yeah. way. And, and that's kind yeah. of where the, the have to learn it part comes in, that people have to see the value in peace. So they have to be shown because they've only ever known the value in in go get them. Go yeah, get we're yeah. we're still in that in that respect, kind of in kindergarten with the you know somebody says mine and we go no, I'm going to come take it, and that's not. If they say in mine, German, let them have it. <laughs> in German, the word for war, Krieg, is the same word as to get. It's it's it, as as Jean said, it's going getting something, it's seizing something. Uh, so it's interesting those words, it's the same word. War means to, to get, to take something. Uh, and, um, and it's been that way for a long time. But as, as Jean said, I think it has a lot to do with, with the social structures that, that bear down on us. Um, and those structures serve some very powerful interests. There's some <laughs> extremely powerful people who want to maintain those structures. Uh, and convinces that uh, that war is absolutely necessary. And I think they believe it themselves because that's their personality. They've been fighting. You have to claw your way to the top, but they've done that, and they're and they're they're warriors. Um, but um, it's certainly less than a human situation, but certainly less than the humans have have the capacity to achieve. Um, Amen to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we'll get started because I'm interested um, because Rick said you were a warrior and you're a teacher. So I'm interested. I'd like to know a little more about your backstory. So I'll ask the big question of the day. (laughs) 
Who on earth are I've you? And this, what I've do you do? I've been waiting for this, Jean. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for this big question. Ex- trying to examine the possibility so I could be prepared, a little bit prepared. But, Uh-oh. Uh, he's, <laughs> he, he studied, Jane. You're in trouble now. He studied. <laughs> but now I think I, I think I... I think I missed. So, so tell me again. Ask me again. Your... It's okay. Who on earth are you, and what do you do? What on earth are me? What do I do? Well, that's a, that is a, an extremely large question. I'm sort of in the in the process of trying to answer that myself. Um, I'm. I've never liked. I grew up. I never really liked the situation I was in. I I, I never liked this school. I didn't like my home situation. I've always been sort of discontent. Um, and and that made me kind of bookish and, and retreat from from the outside world a bit, from the world of the school and the world of the family uh, into into books. So I, I read a lot, um, but uh, didn't study very much in school. Um, would much rather read and um, And back in the, and my love of reading made me want to become a writer, because uh, I figured, well, if they can do that, I can do it. Um, and and I realized that I that also I probably couldn't do a lot much else. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, because I I couldn't study. I just could not sit there and pound stuff into my head. Uh, and so I wanted to be, and I was reading a lot of books by uh, about by writers who the first books were war novels, uh, or books about war. Uh, Eric William Marks, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, and uh, some Hemingway's Norman Mailer, um, and um, said, "Well, that's a, that seems to be a good way to get started. Write a war novel." And, and in 1964. The Vietnam War was just beginning to warm up. I said, "Well, hey, here's a war. I'll go. I'll go there and uh, go to war, and I'll write a, a war book about it." Sure. There, were, there was a draft, so I was going to have to do something about the draft. Um, and it wasn't the. So I went in. I went in, and I figured, "Well, I'll go in the toughest outfit there is." Um, there was a, another reason, though. Too, I got uh, into the sort of the beginnings, the, the end of the beatnik era and the beginnings of the hippie era, the, sort of the, the early jazz, bebop, drug scene uh, in Greenwich Village in New York and San Francisco, uh, and got really pretty strung out on uh, on non-addicting marijuana. I smoked non-addicting marijuana every chance I got for six years. And we were it's not very... Uh, <laughs> uh, and... I first thought, well, it's a great way to write, you know, boy. Then I realized it's it's not. It's sort of, it became for me a substitute for writing, uh, for creative, for real creativity. And I felt like I was being creative, and that that but the the results weren't so uh, inspiring. And I was trying to get out of that scene too. Um, and but to go, but it had to be another extreme scene because that that scene I was in was pretty extreme, you know. Uh, uh, Shooting drugs on the Lower East Side of New York City, uh, and but I wanted to do something sort of the opposite extreme, which was going into the special forces, uh, and 
and I did that, and and soon regretted it. Um, yeah, because you didn't I just was, go to go to the war; you went to the really knife the knife core. knife point ugly ugliest of the ugly, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, wasn't totally ugly because it's still human beings. They were a pretty extraordinary group of people in the special forces. Um, but I was got right away. I ran in in base training and in, in special forces training. I learned how soldiers are are manufactured. Um, and and it be, it turned me off because uh, it the military is the most uh, patriarchal institution and it and it's a very toxic kind of masculinity that is cultivated in the military particularly in in, in the special forces and these these uh, hardcore commando units um, so since it's the most patriarchal institution they create soldiers by turning them turning these young men into the lowliest creature under patriarchy which is a woman <laughs> so they're their masculinity, the, the training involves taking taking these young guys, taking their masculinity, their sense of personal power, stripping that away from them, and making them do the lowliest work, polishing their their shoes and dusting the rafters and being very persnickety and neat, um, and to be obsessed with their appearance. Uh, always be worried if, if their hair is cut short enough and if they shaved and their, their clothes are all neat. Um, and they get inspected by these older, powerful men. They stand in lines. Rick, were you in the, were you in the military? I was not. Now you you, you were you're I, too young for that. Merchant Marine, but no no military. Yeah. Oh, I'd like to hear about something. But but these inspections, the older, powerful men walk right up to you and look you over as if you're a piece of meat, uh, and it is inevitably engenders a kind of confused rage. Uh, the military runs on homophobia uh, to a large degree. That's why they have so much trouble with this whole issue. Uh, is that, and young guys, their sexual identity can be kind of, um, a bit, it's not quite formed yet. They don't really know what, what their sexuality is. It's very confusing and it engenders a lot of rage in them because that's, what is this? What is this guy looking at me like that for? Um, and then this rage, they consciously want, it, want you to get mad about this, and then this rage is, is given an outlet of, of the enemy, something you can, you can uh, take all this frustration out on. Um, and you're, and you're um, symbolically, you're, you're, your phallus is taken away from them and replaced with, with a weapon becomes a substitute for their sexuality. Um, and the um, and instead of something loving, because there's all, it's just shot through with, with um, when you're getting inspected, they call you insulting names, like, like they, they would call a woman, I don't want to use the words, but we all know those words. They're, they're really vicious, disgusting terms for, for women and female body parts and stuff like that. They call you these terms, um, and uh, and guys, well, they don't know what to make of this. Um, so they give you the outlet in, in terms of, of you've got a gun. Uh, 
You may have a you may have a phallus, but you have a gun. Um, and instead of something loving that brings people closer together uh, and create new life, their sexuality becomes a tool for death and for destroying life. The military, it flips sexuality into its opposite. Uh, so something loving, it, it's something uh, hateful and killing. Uh, it's really profoundly sick. Uh, and behind it all is the sense that if you can put up with this, that you can then move up in the hierarchy. You can get promoted, and then you can do it to, to the other guys. You can do it to the other guys. So it's, you can climb this patriarchal ladder uh, that uh, that's deeply anti-feminine. Uh, and, and, and interestingly, I, I want to point this out to you, William, while you're, um, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm, one of the things I find fascinating about this is that as they move up, they are symbolically given their phalluses back. So, uh-huh. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the, yeah. the symbolic symbol of the phallus actually marks their rank. The more <laughs> little symbolic penises you the have more on little, your uniform. The more little bars. Yeah. Um, yeah. The more little bars you have on your uniform, the, the more of a man you are. Yeah. And so... I'll get yeah, me some bars, and then it's, and then I can screw them instead of them screwing me, so to speak. Exactly, so twisted. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's no wonder. It's no wonder with that. Uh, again, uh, since we've interrupted before, you get uh, going again because it's a fascinating uh, topic and story, and I want to hear it all. But uh, it's not a wonder to me uh, with that atmosphere that they have this problem with sexual assaults. Uh, that's right. been in the news recently yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, on on female soldiers because female soldiers don't exactly fit right in that patriarchal model that they set up. That's true. Yeah, they're a real threat. They're a real threat to this thing because you're right that they get their balance back, but it's it's still not. It's only a, a means of power. It just since sexuality is so much associated with power over another person, it's very easy to transfer that into into rape uh, when when the women are there. And um, so, uh, yeah, it's quite a mess. <laughs> but um, and then in Vietnam, then I went to I was on a, a team in Vietnam, um, and we worked closely with the, with the Vietnamese giving them military training and I was also spent six months down in your area that down in Panama at the jungle warfare school there um, and uh, and then then went to Vietnam because um, I saw firsthand how the South Vietnamese government was hated by the people because of its corruption and cruelty and oppression even the soul we work with the with the Vietnamese soldiers uh, and they hated it. <laughs> um, the government was only held in power by the massive American support. And at, at first, I thought we'd made a terrible mistake by supporting this government. But then after I got out of the Army, I gradually realized that it's a worldwide pattern the United States has. It wasn't a mistake. It was just a standard procedure to support any right-wing dictator because they're the most anti-communist. And that's, that's America's priority. still is. Um, and... Um, 
any government that's even thinking about moving in a left-wing direction has to be violently opposed. Doesn't matter how many people get killed. Um, and I, I gradually begin began to change and to turn against it. Um, and I learned how, from Howard Zinn and reading Noam Chomsky, how, how thoroughly the ruling elite in the U.S. has managed to crush any left-wing movements in the U.S. also. Um, from the very beginning, the country has been run by the rich in the service of their own interests. So the, the, the so-called founding fathers were just rich, rich white men who were uh, defending their interests. They were very broad-minded in many respects. Uh, but this godlike adoration we have of them is, uh, isn't borne out by the historical facts. Uh, they were just uh, smart, rich men uh, who, knew, who didn't want to have a king anymore. Uh, and uh, this was a better deal. So um, I think we can, we can respect them, uh, you know, some of them. Uh, same men like Thomas Jefferson had some brilliant ideas, but he was also a slave owner uh, and didn't see any uh, contradiction in that. Um, so the, um, and then I began to see the whole power apparatus of the society, the military, the police, the courts, all the mainstream media and the schools are designed to support and defend business and private wealth, private property. Um, it's their government. They own it. Both political parties belong to them. Um, and they're the ones who keep the U.S. fighting around the world because their, their empire has gone global now and needs to be defended against uh, people in those countries who don't want it. The... Um, well, I think we're going to have to take the power away from these corporations uh, and that they're controlling the government and our lives. Uh, and uh, we have to take the ownership of the world's resources away from these privileged few and return it to, to humanity as a whole and then manage these resources democratically to, to serve human needs rather than just private profits. And it seems to me that's the great struggle of our times. Um, and my writing and peace activities uh, are hopefully contribute to that. So that's who, who I am and what I'm doing. Uh, my previous book is about uh, the radical peace movement. Uh, peace activists who have given up on demonstrations and petitions and uh, are, um, are, are turned to direct action. They're um, They're destroying computer systems and helping soldiers to desert and burning military vehicles um, and uh, sabotaging defense contractors. I don't personally do that myself. Uh, to me, it's awfully macho, but I have some friends who, who burn army trucks, um, well, a friend, um, and uh, others who who destroyed defense contractors, uh, computer systems with electronic surges. Um, and that's what Radical Peace is about. It's about this. Um, yeah, to me, it's, it's a bit macho. Um, I'm sort, of answering, sort of answering fire with fire a bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, what I've helped soldiers to desert, uh, and, and as such, I might have trouble after the book, I haven't been back to the U.S. after the book has been released, 
Um, and I don't know, I might, I might have some trouble. I think they'd let me in, but they might give me some very unpleasant uh, uh, questioning about how they can find these people that I talk about in the book. So, um, <laughs> but then the the new book is more it was more gentle um, and more uh, yeah, more positive. The wellsprings of fable of consciousness and it has to do with uh, with the environmental crisis and. Certainly, certainly something we are not going to successfully go in and conquer and wrestle to the ground. Yeah, right. That mentality, yeah, conquer and wrestle to the ground is what is what that's what we've been. We just reflexively we do that to the earth. That's what we're trying to do. That's how that's how capitalism operates, uh, going in and, and wrestling it to the ground. But um, yeah, it doesn't um, doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work on the environment. The, uh, it takes another it takes another approach, um, and I don't think we can really have a decent environment under capitalism. I think certain improvements around the edges can be made, and people like Al Gore uh, want to convince us that yeah, well, it can be good for business to to clean up the environment. It can be good in certain edges of it, uh, and and those things are worth doing. I mean, the Hudson River now is uh, is much cleaner than it was before, and that's good. Uh, but it goes somewhere else. Uh, goes somewhere else. Now we we clean up stuff in the U.S. and many times by shipping it overseas to the poor countries, and they have this massive uh, problems with toxic waste. Because if profits are always your number one priority. That's uh, that's what you do, and, and anything that gets in the way uh, is is something to, to be uh, dismissed and gotten over. But um, and I write, I've written both these books to try to convince people, including myself, not to give up on our efforts to change the country. So many of us now, U.S. are just we have retreated into apathy and futility after Obama. Uh, Continued the war that he promised to stop. Uh, now disappointment is turning to despair. That's, that's the thing I get in, 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 in a lot of rage. Um, now that he marketed himself as one thing, and it, it's just turned out to be just another imperialist, killing thousands of people just to maintain uh, U.S. power in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but it's an old story. I mean, the that's what the Democrats do. Well, <laughs> I think. I think the I think the power of any individual is is almost nil because yeah. you arrive and there's this whole mechanism and it's like oh you, you, it's not like a sports car you can't just turn it around it, I I I've mm -hmm. always thought that ship of state is a very apt uh, metaphor because it is it's a huge thing and it doesn't it doesn't turn on a dime and uh, uh, you know, you, because you you could get there and be president, and you want to do these things, but you know, powerful interests show up and say, no, no, don't rock the boat. We got a good thing going here. You know. Yeah. If you wanna, by the time anyone gets anywhere close to being a presidential possibility, they've been totally 
checked out <laughs> and are totally on the side of the of the existing order, it seems to me. The, uh, well, and I think that there's a lot of people, I mean, not to to say that they're correct, but that that many of these people believe that if if this oppressive order is not maintained, that nothing but damaging chaos will result. You know. That's yeah. That's one of the many fears that that are continually from from the media. That uh, this may not be perfect, but it's better than any possible alternative. Um, and I think the people running the show actually believe that. I don't, I don't think these are insane monsters. I think they're just people have a certain class perspective on it, uh, and they really believe that uh, sort of a benevolent uh, empire run by the United States and, and Europe is going to be is going to be the best we can come up with. Um, and you know, there'll still be a lot of suffering and we still have wars, but if we didn't do it, the other guys would be worse. And they, they, they can justify a lot that way. Um, and, and the other guys, you know, would in some cases be worse because they're a product of the same damn system. <laughs> they're also this aggressive uh, type. Like, you know, Nicaragua, you know, we'll go in and take their land. Uh, that, that can happen. So it's... Uh, and it easily becomes this despair that you that you commented on. It easily becomes this, you know, well, we have choices, but our choices are between somebody that's going to force us to be this way or somebody that's going to force us to be that way, that there's not a choice other than which, you know, thing do you want to be oppressed by, it seems. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, horrible as Bush was... One of the people I interviewed in Radical Peace said she thought George Bush was the best president we've ever had, George W. Bush, because he stripped away this facade that, that America is a benevolent country that wants to do good in the world and showed the true, uh, the, the true aggressiveness of it. Uh, because he's so, he's so crude that uh, he couldn't cover it up. Uh, and also things have gotten tougher for, for the ruling class. Um, They've got massive competition now from China and India, cheap labor, and if they're going to stay competitive, they don't. They have to find other other sources of labor, and they have to force wages down in the U.S. Uh, and they have to, to seize control of of the Middle East oil resources if, if they're going to maintain their dominance. and And they clearly want to do that. So it's not just that they want to get more. That either the way capitalism works, either you you triumph or you go down. Uh, there's no kind of steady state about it. Uh, we've been lucky enough. I wouldn't say lucky, but for the past 40 years, for 30 years during the 1950s uh, and through the through the most of the 70s, it was an extraordinary uh, fluke in capitalism, where where people were prosperous, particularly in the industrial countries in in North America uh, and in Europe. Great prosperity that got a good ways down, um, but but be, only because the market. Well, two things: there are strong labor unions then, <laughs> not anymore. Uh, but back then there were, and, and they fought for these things. They fought for things like uh, health insurance and, uh, and 
and retirement benefits uh, and wage increases and better, safer working conditions. And, and they won some victories, but also it made sense for the corporation to be to be a little more generous uh, because the primary market was in the home country. So it's, it was this Keynesian approach to capitalism of, of stimulating consumption by paying your workers a decent wage. Uh, and that works for a while. Uh, but now that, that phase of capitalism is passed. Uh, and what we have now is the consolidation phase when, there, when fewer and fewer companies survive uh, and our companies are faced by this really ruthless competition because capitalism is totally ruthless uh, from from these low-wage countries. Uh, and so we can't, we're being told now, well, we can get back to the good old days. We can't. We can't. That time is over because there's no way that the, the whole market is not a big enough market anymore for them to care what their workers make. Uh, they're, they're having to compete with with really cheap labor, and and they're doing everything they can to uh, to lower us gradually into that uh, in that situation uh, until we. Well, and like you said, it was in their favor to pay their workers well because that was the market. Those were yeah, the people yeah, that were buying were. the goods, and now the the. The, the, the focus is on the so-called emerging economies where people are uh, making low wages by comparison to the U.S., but more than they used to make. And um, and so now they're buying stuff. Now they want a cell phone mm-hmm. and a computer and a yeah. condo yeah. and, a, ha- and mm-hmm. a car. and So th- that's where the market is. That's where the... Right. Um, and it's got to be cheap. It's got to be real cheap for them to be able to buy it. Right, and and um, so like you said, there's no motivation to. The motivation now is to lower the wage in the in the U.S. And it's happening. There's young guys now are, are making less than their parents made. Young workers now are making less. You know, starting out with making less than than their parents did. Terrible. But so when I came back from the war, I, I wanted to write this book. Um, and but I got back into the by then this was '67 when I came back. By then the whole hippie thing was in full bloom, and I had taken some LSD, smoked a lot of grass in the army, and sort of got back into that scene again. Uh, and it was really impeding my writing like it had done before. Uh, and but if that's all your friends, if all your friends are into it, it's very hard to pass it up. It's very hard to turn down that joint when it comes around again. Uh, just because you know well, you won't be able to write so well the next day. Uh, and the thing about those drugs is the uh, what seemed to me is that it takes the energy that you have, your your stores of energy for the future, your your creative uh, power that, that you have uh, that, that you normally would use over weeks in the future, and compacts all that into like a couple of hours of a high. Uh, but then afterwards, you feel a little bit empty, a little bit uh, lethargic maybe, and, and but hey, things were really great then, so it's, it's hard not to smoke that, that next joint, uh, because it sucks, I, I find it sucks your future out. <laughs> uh, and that's why so many people who do a lot of drugs 
they get in all sorts of trouble on their lives. They're just kind of meandering around in life, as I did for a while. But I found out, I got into uh, doing transcendental meditation uh, as a way to get out of drug, but also a way to get out of my post-traumatic stress syndrome, because I had, I had pretty deep trauma from the war, even though I denied it at the time. Um, but the, the starting TM was a great... Uh, Great change because I could suddenly I just didn't want the drugs anymore. Uh, it was satisfying enough. I felt good enough the way it was. I had plenty of energy. My mind was clear. I didn't need to get high. Uh, and and my fear and my uh, withdrawalness that, that I had about in regards to the trauma started to fade away. Uh, and I got more interested in that in consciousness. That, the only drugs I really liked were the conscious expanding drugs, LSD and psilocybin and the magic mushrooms and, and, and marijuana. Uh, the, other, the others I didn't like at all. Um, but the meditation was a much better way to, to have that for real as opposed to just being stoned and kind of getting a glimpse of it. Uh, and so I, I started meditating and I could, then I really could start to write. I started to write the, the novel that became a world of hurt that the Warner Reinhardt Foundation Award for its portrayal of the psychological roots of war, the, um, the need for patriarchal approval and the blocked emotions that, uh, that attract young men to the military. The, uh, so, um, well, that's a, more interested in- I, I find that to be a fascinating uh, study, a fascinating topic this psychological roots of war because i've all, I, I used to wonder even when i was a kid about what what is that all about <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's really this patriarchal uh this patriarchal thing that uh, that you discussed at the beginning because uh society was once uh quite matriarchal um, yeah. I mean, yeah. some people today might say, well, that's not society. That's just indigenous people. But it, society, you've got people relating to each other and, and communities relating to each other. That's society. And um, and it was. It was very matriarchal. I mean, uh, uh, it, it's easy to say, give it a glancing blow and say that it wasn't, you know, because the women stayed home and and you know cooked and and looked after the teepee and while the men were out hunting and warring or whatever but they they really didn't war very much they did hunt and and you know they were warriors in the in the uh, to the extent that they were pr- trying to provide a safe space for the people often against animals not against other people and um but it was it was the women that that were pretty much in charge, and um, uh, and then we got turned around to this patriarchy thing, and it is it's a it's it's a rather exaggerated um, um, and uh, I don't know the the, the, the right word toxic form of masculinity and. Um, um, just like I think you can go the other way and have plenty of problems too. You know, if you if you magnify the bits of 
masculinity that serve your purpose, it's a very toxic thing. Yeah. And of course, as you said, the solution is not just to replace patriarchy with matriarchy. It's not just, okay, well, let's get, take all the power away from the, from the men and give it to the women. It's to create a society where, where the, no one group really has power over another group, where we're all sort of have, have an equal share in it, and, and there is no domination. Uh, that's the essence of patriarchy, is the domination, but we also don't want domination by women, because that would just be what I would call, and what we find now, to some, t- some extent happening, is women in power, women in power in the military, women in power in corporations, and in, um, in government, having doing the same policies as the men do. To me, that's just patriarchy with perfume. You've got women there, but they're doing the same stuff. Um, and um, they're, they're products of that system. Well, and really, to, to climb to those to those spots, they have to learn to play the game the way that it's currently set up. Yeah, yeah. And not to, not to try to change the system, but to adapt to it uh, and to sell that as real change. It's not change. Um, and we're also bombarded with, with the idea that war is human nature. It's just always going to be that way. There's nothing we can do about it. That's it. Get used to it, folks. Uh, it's always been that way since we were in the cave, and it's never going to change. Yeah. I've heard that so many times. Makes Capitalism. Human nature and the current gender roles and family structure, human nature. Um, but that same sort of personality type that believes that also believed in previous centuries that that, that, are, that slavery is natural, that the divine right of kings is natural, the subjugation of women is natural. That's just nature, we, you know. But those things were changed, and we can keep making changes now. It's this our drive to change things shows our real human nature to take control of our fate. And improve our situation. Um, and as you said, war has a lot to do with patriarchy. Uh, but the, yeah, these early matriarchal civilizations, especially the one in southeastern Europe, they enjoyed centuries of peace. It was a gentle climate, uh, and they didn't have to struggle so much. There's a wonderful book about this uh, by a UCLA anthropologist called Marija Gimbutas. It's called the Civilization of the Goddess. Uh, and we discovered this this Neolithic civilization uh, starting about 5,000 BC. They were the inventors of agriculture. Uh, there was there was the movement away from just this hunter-gatherer thing into into communities where people raised crops. Um, and they were but they were um, conquered by by Bronze Age patriarchy, but by patriarchal warriors out of the steppes of Asia about 3,000 BC. Um, and at that point, their whole the whole civilization changed. Even the art changed. They, in her excavations during this time, the art tended to be rounder. The, the, the ceremonial ceremonial objects were rounder, uh, gentler, and curvaceous. Uh, and suddenly, after this conquest, they became more like spear-like, linear, more more phallic. Uh, and the uh, also. On many of the Pacific Islands, war was totally unknown. They had enough. And they didn't have a lot, but they had enough. And the ancient Vedic civilization of India had meditation techniques that preserved the peace. And we're using those today, trying to get large groups of people of meditating together to see what that does in the surrounding community. So war isn't inevitable. Our human genes don't force us to make war on, on each other, but there are 
in certain situations, uh, chimpanzees raid neighboring colonies and kill other chimps. And these studies on, on the, what they call the killer apes got enormous publicity. Uh, books written about them, people interviewed on all the big talk shows. Um, and they, because they implied that war is inevitable, it's hardwired into human nature. The scientists themselves weren't really claiming that, but the way the media picked it up, reinforcing this message, that's just the way it is, folks, hardwired into us. Uh, but then further research led to a, a really important discovery that got virtually no publicity at all. <laughs> it turns out the chips who invaded their neighbors, the ones who did, where these studies were made, they were all struggling for, for, from, for survival. They suffered from shrinking territory and food sources. They were being pushed away, pushed out by the people, uh, and the, uh, they, they were really under a, an existential threat. Uh, the groups that had adequate resources didn't raid other colonies. They lived in peace with their neighbors. So the aggression was not a behavioral constant. It wasn't hardwired into them. It was caused by the stress they were under. Just a now, stress humans, reaction. Yeah, yeah. Our genes, our, our genes and, and the chimpanzee genes, they give us the capacity for violence. But the stress factor has to be there to trigger it into combat. So the new research showed that war is inevitable, but it's a function of the stress a society is under. Well, and Violence that it, nature doesn't force us to war. It gives us the potential for it. It's within yeah. our nature to be able to do that because it's within our nature yeah. that if we suddenly have a stressor of a giant beast coming at you, you you react you either fight or flight it's what mm -hmm. that that is just survival mechanism and uh but that it's not it's not triggered it's, it's sort of like the native native american nations there were many nations on the what is now the one nation of the united states and and for the most part until we started pushing them and crowding them into each other they really didn't war with each other yeah, uh, they had certain. Yeah, it was more of a. They had certain rituals, and they had they had conflicts, but they would deal with ways of dealing with them without killing, you know, massive numbers of people. And, right. Um, uh, it, it. I saw a study that was released recently that was in. I saw an article in the BBC about it. Uh, a study that said that war isn't a natural state. That it was, you know, in these early indigenous groups that there was occasionally some fighting but it was almost always over some personal it was it was like two two people uh -huh. two oh, families yeah. that had uh -huh. some something uh -huh. and so it was minor and it was small you could almost call it a squabble and um but th that for the most part those communities just you know got along together and and frankly it, it you know god bless the survival instinct but but depending on the on the situation, I mean, it's one thing when you have a big animal coming in that wants to kill you. Yes, that's a survival, we better fight or run away situation. But that it's often anti-survival, really, to take that easy survival instinct way out mm -hmm. of the situation mm -hmm. because it it's like this... Uh, capitalism. Much of what you're saying reminds me of uh, the work that Charles Eisenstein is doing. About uh, his book is called Sacred Economics, and uh, uh, you know, capitalism is sort of based on this: you got to grow, 
you got to grow, you got to grow. Well, there's only so much growth to be had, really. You know, the planet's rather finite, and, uh, uh, you know, the economy grew to the point, particularly like an, quote-unquote, advanced economy like the United States, that they were already making people pay for everything you could think of. So, so then they started making people pay for stuff that used to be free, and like water, <clears throat> and uh, uh, and and that now they've they've even pretty much run out of those things. So there's nowhere left to look for growth except some sort of a uh, take it, you know, as Krieg, you know, go get it, take it, uh, because otherwise you you know you. You gobble up little companies, and then you can say, "See, our bottom line's bigger." Well, and that's called economic efficiency. To yeah, yeah, and um, that it is that there's just a, a real fundamental error, you might say, or bad assumption in this economic model of of uh, endless growth. There's no there's there's no stable system. There's no stable state. It, it's always a a growing thing. And really, frankly, the only yeah. always grows, never stops that I'm aware of on the planet is cancer. Maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe viruses, but 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 it is. It's rather. Uh, and he talks about the South Pacific uh, that you were talking about that all that time with no wars and that. Charles that's, uh, that's, I, I, you know, I, I just looked at sacred economics. Sacred economics, and it, it, that, and he's approaching it from an econ, uh, from an eco- economical, an economy uh, standpoint. That, that, uh, you know, these nations in the South Pacific were, or, or communities on islands, whatever you want to call them, um, that they had what he calls the gift economy. Mm-hmm. You went to your, you know, there was a neighboring island. You figured out how to get over there. You showed up with, and, 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 and as soon as you got there, you showed up with gifts. You gave them gifts. So now you have a relationship of gratitude with these other people. Uh, yeah. And uh, that that was, that this gift economy, which engendered gratitude, that he he says he thinks is endemic in all of us. We we somehow somewhere in us recognize that getting up, breathing in the morning is something to be grateful for. That life is the, the that the whole thing's based on gift. We have the gift of life, the gift, oh, yeah. of, and 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 so that if you get the economy back on the gift system, um, that instead of being tied by, um, well. Tied to the economy, because in, in, in the current economy, you pay for something, and now you're done. You don't need that other person. You don't need, you know, you've got what you need. And Everything is reduced to uh, an economic exchange, friendships. and Right. It's, it's, not totally friendships. I mean, I'm, I don't mean which are overstated, because there's still legitimate human relationships in our society, but, but there's an awful lot of... Uh, Especially in the big cities like LA and New York, it's an awful lot of sizing people up. If they're going to be a friend, how can they help you? You know, you want you want your you want to pick the friends that can help you get ahead. Right, right, and yeah. and I see a lot of uh, relationship troubles that are really sort of based on 
the two people have been keeping a balance sheet and they both think that they're out of balance. The other one owes uh-huh. me, you know, yeah. I did, I did this for her and she didn't do anything. Well, that's a, <laughs> some kind of a, some kind of a screwy economic balance sheet thing. That's not that, a gift society. <laughs> no, a it's a, it's a, it's a tit for tat society. You start with, you start with debt sort of, and <laughs> instead of, instead of starting with gift and, uh, uh, very interesting work that he's doing, and it it it, it reminds me of, of many of the things that you're talking about. But we've reached the uh, the halfway point in the show, so we'll take a, a brief musical break and uh, uh, come back. I want to hear a little bit more about uh, uh, this latest work, and uh, you know, because it's. Uh, challenging or scary some people might say but also very hopeful um and um i want to look at some of that hopefulness because we like hopefulness around here and um we need it yeah well we do some gratitude and hopefulness go a long way towards straightening stuff out around here but um uh goodness gracious uh gene i don't even know what what song to play maybe uh when we run, that the day when we run is Maybe. gone, or or yeah, that could work. Or anyhow, or you just do it anyhow, or because um, I think I, I don't know Jordan's piece. Of when we run is I find so interesting. You know that the day when we run is gone, um, wow. and uh, so why don't we give that a shot, eh? All right. I'd like to hear it. Yeah. Then we we'll come back and we'll do this hopeful business. So this is our friend Jordan Okren, uh with When We Run, and we'll be right back, folks. Stay with us.
All right, welcome back, everybody. Again, that was our friend Jordan Okren, uh, and you can find out more about uh, Jordan's work and amazing journeys, which included recently the Phoenix Nest right there in the Laurentian Mountains. Uh, but you check him out at jordanokrand.com. It's O-K-R-E-N-D, jordanokrand.com. Hope you'll check him out. He's a cool, cool dude, huh, Gene? Yeah, he's very on your talented. Couch. He's a very talented young man. I'm absolutely fascinated by his humility as well. He's just a very quiet, subdued, gentle, talented, super talented individual. Deeply thoughtful. Um, yes. He does have some songs, as he pointed out when I said something about his thoughtful lyrics and not very much bubblegum. He said, well, there's some, and, well, yeah, he's, of course. Teenage boy occasionally writing a song about lost love or stuff. That's, sure, of course. But then he also has some of these just extraordinarily insightful and deeply thoughtful lyrics that fascinate me because, you know, like, wow, where'd that come from? But then again, we've met his parents, too, on the show, and, they're reasonably insightful folks, so I guess it just goes that way. But we were here with William, and um, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit more about Wellspring. It's um, uh, or well, is it Wellspring or Well Springs? Well Springs, the plural. Springs. I, I, as soon as it as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, wait a minute, that's not it. It's something. Else. Oh, put an S on the end. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <clears throat> I get confused sometimes. Well, I wrote it as, as a way of sort of an antidote to the Radical Peace book, and I've gotten so wrapped up in just this political approach to it uh, and overthrowing the system and everything. Uh, and this takes a gentle approach. I, I've been, I was convinced, as we were talking before, that, that, that violence doesn't, without stress to provoke it, Violence can remain just one of the many unexpressed capacities our human evolution has given us. Um, but the uh, but our society runs on stress. Many of our social and economic structures are based on conflict. And, and as you were saying, capitalism's need for continually expanding profits generates stress in all of us. Now, we all have most of us have to work longer, for, for more hours for less money. But and we've been indoctrinated to think that's inevitable, normal, natural, but it's pathological. It damages life in ways we can barely perceive because they're so built into us, this hyper-competitiveness. Uh, we live this way, and we can reduce the stress humanity suffers under. And we can create a society that meets human needs and distributes resources more evenly. And we can live at peace with one another. This can take basic changes. Um, and some of, that, some of those changes can be done by transforming politics and economics. Uh, but, and that's the approach I took in Radical Peace. Uh, but towards the end of that book, in, in my new book, uh, Wellsprings, A Fable of Consciousness, uh, I, I began to move towards other approaches to really change the system. We also, it's not just an we also need to change the collective consciousness that has produced the system. You have to work it from both sides, the, the, the structures and, and the consciousness that produces those structures. Uh, but until recently, changing the collective consciousness seemed impossible. That's just a given. That's just the way things are. 
techniques are now available that enable us to directly influence the collective consciousness. Uh, and as I mentioned before, the ancient Vedic civilization in India had meditation techniques that kept the peace. Uh, and these are being used today. The basic principle is that when large numbers of people, thousands of people, practice transcendental meditation together, peace occurs automatically. And not just for the people meditating. The whole society becomes peaceful through them. And it sounds amazing, but there are 23 studies that have been published in peer-reviewed academic journals that show that large groups of meditators reduce violence and improve the quality of life in the whole surrounding area. Yeah, you can like reduce the the violent crime numbers in New York City by having a big bunch of people meditating about yeah, it. Yeah, it, and they've got scientific studies that show this. Uh, they've done experiments in North and South America, Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, uh, with these thousands of people together for long meditations. And during every one of these assemblies, crime, violence, and even accidents in the region dropped. Uh, the effects on war were particularly remarkable. Uh, during these assemblies, terrorism and casualties dropped by an average of 70%, and the levels of fighting dropped by half. Figures returned to the and again, the, levels. Again, I, I just want to magnify again, it's not the people that were fighting that were meditating, but the effect yeah, was there anyway. Just there. just uh, uh, And the... Uh, I attended two of these assemblies, and the experiences were wonderful. You meditate with thousands of other people, it, it very much strengthens the results. The, the mental emanations reinforce one another. And they work on the level of collective consciousness where all our minds are linked. Uh, our individual minds aren't fundamentally separate. They share a deeper dimension in common. Uh, the basic principle here is that is the same way with a radio or television transmitter. We all send out mental energy through a field of consciousness that, that connects us, and everyone is continually sending and receiving these influences. But the mental atmosphere we share is just loaded with them, and there's often fear, frustration, and anger, and aggression, particularly in a big city. You can feel it. Uh, and it pollutes the collective consciousness, this pool where all our minds are somehow linked together. Uh, and that results in cloud. Like, like you say, if you went into uh, into the capital of Costa Rica, it would be a different situation. When you get large amounts of people together who are generating negativity, uh, that also affects the collective consciousness. Uh, yeah, like when I when I returned to visit Houston, and I I started feeling almost mm -hmm. aggressive. Yeah, I would it, read a news article and. That I would read a news article that I might read down here and think, you know, oh, well, that's goofy. Why would they do that? But I'd read it there, and I'd be like, hey, that's not right. Somebody needs to stop them. Stop them, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, those, just, yeah. Not, that's just not in <laughs> – that's just really not in me because when I – whatever's natural in me would be with me wherever I went, it seems to me. That's what you call nature, right? It's what's always there. Absolutely. And, Hard work. Yeah. and that stuff is not, not there when I'm in yeah. this atmosphere. But when I get into that atmosphere, it apparently begins to be pulled back to the surface just by being there. 
I didn't talk to very many people. I was only there for five days, so you know. But it was quick. It was within a couple of days, within forty-eight hours of being there. It was just you know, almost like itching powder or something. <laughs> See what I find fascinating about this whole topic, and I'm going to let you guys run with this in a second, but. We've known for a really long time when dealing with troubled youth in the area of um, psychology and sociology that the environment of the home dictates to a large extent the success or failure of the individual. Why on earth can we not equate that on a social level? How is it we have not mentally and emotionally bridge the gap from, okay, if a kid grows up in a messed up home, then he's going to have some messed up ideas, to if society's children, the next generation, is raised in a dysfunctional society, then they're going to have some wonky, twisted ideas. How have we how have we gapped on that? Like, how do you not bridge the gap between the two? It makes sense. Our scientists are telling us that these kids need help because they've been raised by people who are a little. So how come they're not also telling us, well, society might need help because the people who've come before had some little ideas? Because that would lead to changing the system, and the, and the, and the system. <laughs> The people running the system don't want to change it. Very resistant to change. Like a big ship, it it's very hard to change so, course. And but it just seems so glaringly to, obvious to me. Sure, it is, yeah. I think more sometimes more I have to go. That. More and more people are, are, are seeing that reality now. Uh, but as these negative atmospheres intensify and the pressures now, groups of people then turn to the mass insanity of warfare. First, you get, you get the nutcases flipping out, but then the whole group can say, yeah, well, we have to go to war. Um, but these, this research shows that expert meditators can counteract that. They have the need to bring their thinking mind to this deeper dimension of transcendental consciousness. And they can think from that level where all our minds are connected. And, and from there, their minds have great power. And when a large group of meditators reach that level together, their mental energies reinforce one another into a surge of positivity it overrides the stress of the surrounding population. So the minds of everyone in the area receive this broadcast coherence. It's a life-nurturing energy that heals the collective consciousness of the fear and hostility. It all comes down to fear, really, uh, before this negativity can build up and erupt into crime and war, creating an influence of peace, orderliness, and harmony. Um, so these studies are fantastic. Uh, it really shows that... that that TM, large numbers of people doing it, could could heal the stress in collective consciousness and bring world peace. Um, and they're trying to build now a group of 8,000 meditators to test out this. Uh, that's the number the research has shown is necessary to create a global effect. A global effect needs 8,000 people. Uh, and so far, there's a group of 4,000 in India and 2,000 in Iowa in the U.S. And we're growing. Um, there's more information on the research at this at a website called permanentpeace.org. Uh, it's permanentpeace.org. Uh, and my book, Radical Peace, has information on that too. It sounds bizarre, 
but so did many other important discoveries at the time they were made. Uh, and we can't say it's proven yet, but there's enough indication that something is going on here that we really should look into it. Uh, and so that was, was this more positive, consciousness-based approach that caused me to write Wellsprings, uh, a book about that shows how, how this working through the collective consciousness can be a way to heal the environmental crisis. Um, the story is set 13 years in the future in 2026 when the Earth's ecosystem is broken down under human abuse. Water supplies are shrinking, rain is rare, and all of North America is gripped in the great drought. Crops are withering, forests are dying. And in the midst of this environmental and social collapse, an old woman and a young man meet one another and they set up to heal nature and react the cycle of the water flowing by using these techniques of higher consciousness. But of course the corporations that control the remaining water lash out to stop them. So it's, a, it's an adventure book it's about ecology and about some mystic wisdom. Uh, and it's also a, yeah, a frightening but hopeful look into the future. Um, and it, it starts out with a Sounds young really man, cool. Bob, he's just graduated from high school. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, and uh, he's got to get out of Long Beach, where he, where he grew up, uh, and takes off and, and meets this uh, elderly lady, who is uh, Jane. And Jane is convinced that all the water for all of North America has retreated into a deep subterranean aquifer. And she's searching for the place where it comes close enough to the surface to be able to access it. Um, so they, they're looking for, and eventually they get to, uh, to Mount Shasta. Uh, and Jane teaches Bob Transcendental Meditation, and, and they go to Mount Shasta, and the visions of their meditation help them find this cavern. Uh, um, I thought I'd read a little bit about that scene where, where they actually discover the water. Okay. Uh, Jane and I drive around to the north side of Mount Shasta, hoping to be able to sense the subterranean springs from there. In the moonlight, the mountain looks like a silver pyramid soaring up from the horizon into the starry purple night. The ancient volcano is lord of all it surveys. Veils of clouds are blowing around its peak. We find the glassy, a grassy glade in the forest, the grass is dry and brittle, and the tree branches droop from the drought. As we are spreading our blankets up to meditate, motions on the other side of the clearing catches our eye. Out of the tree steps a black-tailed doe. She sees us and pauses, one foot raised, sniffing, listening, looking. Jean and I stare enthralled. As the doe gazes at us, her eyes join across the space, across the species, Communication flows between us. Cautious curiosity about a fellow creature. She breaks contact, begins nibbling back at us as if to say, as long as you stay on your side, it's okay. We watch her in delight until she trots off. Then we close our eyes to meditate. At first my mantra goes with my heartbeat, then slows and goes with my breath. The sound stretches out into a long hum floating through me. I seem to be beyond my skin, filling the whole clearing. I feel like I'm sinking into the earth. I want to hold on to keep from disappearing. But something tells me to let everything go. I free fall through space, 
then realize it's impossible to fall because there's no down. I'm hovering like a dragonfly over water. The sound fades away, leaving me without thoughts. I seem to expand beyond all space and boundaries to unite with everything. For a moment, I know I am everything, the whole universe. But as soon as I think I'm everything, I'm not anymore. I'm just Bob Parks sitting on a blanket over cold ground. I start the mantra again. Its whisper clears my thoughts away and my mind becomes quiet. of my mind and enjoying it. I never knew I had this watching part before. It doesn't need to think. It's just there, aware of everything, but separate from it. A wise old part of me. I realize I'm off the mantra, drifting on thoughts, so I pick up the sound again and follow it as it gets fainter and finer until it becomes more visual, pulsing light behind my closed eyes. It seems to shine into something, a big cavern that's inside of me, but also outside of me. The boundaries between me and everything else disappear. No difference now between inside and outside. I can see dimly into the cavern. The walls and ceiling are crystal, its facets glinting in the mantra light. Below them in all directions stretches a vast dark sea of water, its ripples gleaming. It's deep, deep as the earth, and I want to plunge in and dive all the way to the bottom. I'm sitting above it. Down there beneath me, beneath these rocks and dirt, rests the water. Seas of immensity, stretching from California under the Great Basin of Nevada, Utah, and Arizona, the parched American desert, the last place the corporate drillers would have looked. We're sitting by the tip of it, closest to the surface. From here, it goes deeper and deeper, soaking through strata of sand and porous rock, a huge aquifer waiting to be freed and flow again. I want to jump up and yell, I found it! But that thought makes it disappear. I take a deep breath and a back, sitting cross-legged on my blanket. Too stunned to say anything, I lie back and feel the ground under me, this good ground with all that good water under it. So they do find, they do get down to the source of water and do manage to free it. Um, and um, the book is a parallel. Of, the reason I call it a fable of consciousness is because it's not, there's, a, there's a parallel between water and consciousness because the water being all locked up deep out of our reach is kind of like our consciousness now that, that we know we need to... Um, but, but it's, it's out of our reach. We, haven't, we know it's down there somewhere. We know peace is there. We know a better life is possible. But, but we don't yet have the conscience to really achieve that. So the book is a, a sort of a, of a metaphor. For the, finding the water is like finding our own deep source of, of inner consciousness and enlightenment and being able to act from that. Um, Maharshi said, Maharshi Yogi, the, the founder of Transcendental Meditation, said that the key, the key to successful life is, is a quotation from the Bhagavad Gita. Established in being, form action. Established in our deepest transcendental self, the deepest part of us. Act from there, think from there, and it will be successful. So the story about reaching that part of, in, inside us and also in our environment 
and one activates the, the other one. It's a short book, um, but, um, but it sounds del- sounds delightful. And you, you well, mentioned thanks, you mentioned Maharish uh, Mahesh Yoga Yogi that founded Transcendental Meditation. You you met him? Yeah, yes, he made me a teacher of TM. I studied with him, yeah, uh, and he made me a teacher of Transcendental Meditation. Uh, and uh, he died in 2008, but things are still moving right along. Uh, there's especially Latin America now, in Costa Rica, in Colombia, in Brazil, thousands of, of young people are starting to meditate in the schools and everything. So it's it's quite a uh, it's quite a big change. Yeah, that must have been quite an quite an experience, I would say, to meet that that being. It was that wonderful. Had yeah, that name. yeah. Uh, he, I would imagine that he had an interesting quality about. It. He did. He did, and it was. Uh, but he was very business-like. He was very focused on his, and his business was teaching people to teach meditation. Uh, and he didn't have what we think of as, as a, a real deep personal side. He, that, he was there to just how to, how to become teachers of meditation. Uh, so he was uh, very focused on that. Uh, well, he had his, but, all of his focus aligned with his passion, which was yeah. this meditation yeah. can heal the world. It's certainly worth trying. We'll have to but, see. <laughs> well, but he believed that. I think. Did did you think? Did he yeah. communicate and that to the, you? I'm. Because, I, I, like you said, he 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 departed in 2008. I'll never get to have him on the show, so I'll, I'll ask you. <laughs> well, the research shows that it really can. It really is a good possibility that that that, that could work, and we should we should try it. Uh, Marie, she said about this research into the effects of large numbers of people meditating. She said, through the window of science, we see the dawn of the age of enlightenment. Marie, was a scientist himself. He has a master's degree in physics, um, so he, he could bridge these two worlds: uh, the Western scientific and this ancient Vedic science of consciousness. Um, and um, there's more about it on my. On there's more samples from. Uh, Radical Peace and from uh, Wellsprings on my website uh, www.peacewriter.org That's an easy one for folks. links to to this. uh... (laughs) Well, we get some interesting websites and Peace Writer is one that I probably don't have to spell for people. It's just Peace Writer. He's a writer. Peacewriter.org And uh, we certainly would invite people to go and uh, and check it out because it, it along with these the, these fascinating stories or the, and, and this fable in Wellsprings sounds just deliciously fascinating. Um, but to also check out all of these fascinating experiences that you've sort of rolled into this, you know, you were a warrior over there, and then you were okay. We're going to have radical peace. We're going to Oh wait, that's not working. Okay, <laughs> piece by piece instead of piece by war. Let's try that. Yeah. And um, uh, 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 just an amazing evolution, and um, uh, uh, some amazing experiences. I mean, to, to have met and, and trained with and studied with the guy, because 
you know, there's a lot about him that people in in the mainstream world, for example, the fact that he had a physics degree. A lot of people think he's some kind of I don't know came yeah. out of, came out of the woods or something, and uh, and that's not so. And um, uh, he was trained by his master, who was a very traditional guy, uh, to to bring this to bring this type of meditation out to the world. It's fundamentally different than other types of meditation. Uh, it, it, the kind of meditations that were practiced in India uh, aren't, aren't transcendental meditation at all. And Maharishi is quite critical when you saying these types of meditation produce a person who wants to retreat from the world and just sit off in a cave and isn't active. Um, and and sort of, it's also kind of life, de- it also led to a life-denying philosophy that our desires are something we should repress. Uh, and the whole thing was, he said, that's why India was in such a terrible situation. Because you had the best minds in the society sitting off in caves trying to get rid of their desires. Uh, and he said, it's just the opposite. We need to fulfill our desires these sounds, and the sounds we use, these, these sounds of mantras have great effects on people. Uh, it's very important that the mantra be chosen that will make, right, for your personality, your nervous system, and that hopefully will, will make you more active uh, in life. There are certain other kinds of mantras for people that want to be reclusive, and they get other kinds of mantras. But, um, so it's, it's a more active, outgoing, socially engaged Type of meditation, um, and um, fundamentally but, different than what was previously taught in India. But like you say, to to think and and act from that place uh, uh, of, of consciousness, as opposed to surface mind, one might say. Yeah. Surface mind is yeah. almost surface mind is almost the collection of stuff you've been told. Like right, competitions, mm-hmm. competitions natural, and and war is natural, and and living in a in a society that's that feeds on stress and adrenaline um, is something I found even in my house in Houston before I left Houston, uh, and something that the locals the locals comment on about Americans that come down here is that, that all they want to do is sleep. And, oh, because they're so exhausted. And I'm, yeah, they're exhausted. They're, they've, they're, <laughs> they've been on an adrenaline overload for sometimes, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. And then they get into this atmosphere down here where you can try for a day or two to keep hustling and going and, you know, but it doesn't work. You, you just can't. <laughs> and because uh-huh. um, um, down here you want to, you know, Oh, I don't know. I had a busy morning, so I think I'm just going to go sit on my patio and stare at the trees. They just smile at you and nod. But you say, you know, well, I had a really busy morning, and I've got twice as much to do this afternoon. And they look at you like you've got ten heads. They, they just do. And once, you, once that release, once that let go happens, people have a tendency to just sleep. People would come to my apartment in Houston. We'd talk for 30 minutes an hour, and then they would sleep, sometimes for 16 hours. And, and oh, no. I think it's just because they were genuinely tired, and they they got into my space, which I was a bit reclusive in my apartment, but it started out as a health necessity. Uh, and uh, probably felt your peace. They felt your inner peace and, and your different vibration, 
and it just put him to it gave it him, put him to sleep. Needed the rest. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, I used to, I, I finally decided people needed the rest more than they needed any words I could give them. So when they said they were tired or dozed off on the couch, I just left them and and mm-hmm. uh, uh, because it, it does. It society is. I almost liken it to it. Well, it's an adrenaline rush, but it's it's kind of like a sugar high or something. And yeah, right, you can right, keep right. feeding it and keep feeding it and keep feeding it. But if you do, you're going to wear the, you know, it's like a, a, a car. You could feed it, you know, really, really high test fuel and run it really, really get more from it than it's ever gotten from it before. But it's going to blow up if you don't stop, you know. Yeah. It, it, you can do that for a short period of time, you know. And and I think we were designed, you know, like mothers lifting cars off children and, and you know, people responding to natural threats in the natural world. Um, we're designed to have that facility, but it was not intended. I think it was intended for very short-term use, not for... Definitely. It's kind of like all of the chemicals, that, the mind-expanding chemicals that you mentioned. If you look at indigenous societies, they were things that were used, but they were used rarely. And in, in ceremonial purposes, yeah. For a, for to cause a, uh, maybe to cause an expansion or a, or a, a vision of something. But then the question was, now okay, you come back here to the village, and what are you going to do with that? It wasn't go off over there and eat the mushrooms forever. It would, you know, they were for a specific purpose. And and uh, we've tried, I think, to, to build a society based on one little piece of who we are, which is the adrenaline response, the fight-or-flight response. I think the whole society is designed around it, the economy, the everything. It's all on fear, fear of loss, fear of somebody's going to take it. If you don't take this job, there's a thousand. What what do you mean you don't think that's right? There's a thousand people waiting for your job. You better straighten up and do, you know, I mean, those are all threats. Those Mm -hmm. are all stressors. They're adrenaline releasers. And And there's a a heavy price to pay if you defy them. Right, and 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 a heavy price to pay if you don't defy them in the health of your body. Uh-huh. Just you know, yeah. They talk right. about all these stress-related diseases. Well, yeah, because society's a stress inducer. It's built that way. And the adrenal glands can be very easily exhausted, so the whole system just then collapses. Because you're right; these are meant for brief, brief bursts of of frantic activity. Not for a, not for a daily life in a society. Right. Yeah. It's like people talk about cheetahs can run sixty some odd miles an hour, but if you go to Africa and you see a cheetah going from point A to point B, they're not running that fast. They're trotting uh-huh. at a very easy low, oh, yeah. oh, you know, right. and it's designed. They get into this stride that's designed for the the least effort over the longest distance, you know, and it it is very efficient, but it's not. That 60-mile-an-hour thing is a very short burst to catch a piece of prey, and, and you know, then they almost have mm-hmm. to, like, they catch it and kill it, and then they just, they don't even start eating right away. They just lay there and puff and, and, and breathe, and, 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 and then they get around to the eating after they've recovered from this, you know, but we... So you've been, you've been, you've been to Africa? Um, or is this from film and stuff? Uh, the, the part about the cheetahs is from films. I've been to Africa, but just North Africa. I've not been to South Africa, yeah. or, or uh, I'd love to go one day. I've never been there at all. But... And how, Nikki? How are you doing there? Are you woken up yet? Oh, I'm 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 awake. 
Okay. Absolutely. Good. We, we, I'm, I'm listening. We woke her up. We, we, it was interesting. Cause I, like I said, the, the, the taping that we had last night, I was just in, in bliss, really, listening to Gene and Jan. Interesting that. Gene, Jan, and who's the character in your book? Jane and Bob. Jane. So Gene, Jan, and Jane. But I was so enthralled and so uh, in joying the conversation and interplay between those two that I, I couldn't hardly bring myself to comment because I was just I wanted to hear what was coming next and I think we've done that to her uh, to to a great extent. But um, but it is it's a fascinating uh, look and a fascinating. Uh, tale and fable to, you know, about the fact that, and I'm glad that you brought up the connection between that there's this deep cave within us that, and, and whether you want to say it's water or it's whatever, and and that when we find it inside, that then it is reflected outside. Um, I think it was what many great masters have talked about, you know, the kingdom of heavens within you the you find the fountain inside that never you drink from the fountain you never thirst again it's not that you don't ever drink again you just there's a constant flow so you don't the drinks always there you don't have to go find it and uh, because it's inside you and beautiful and that once you're really in touch with that that then you can begin to reflect that outside of you and that the reflection begins to happen like you said this, these groups of meditators meditate, there are reactions and changes in people that don't even know that those meditators exist. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, and I think it's because that, more so than that stressful, panicked thing that's going on in society is very uh, incoherent. It's, all, it's going in a thousand directions at once. And when you get the group that's being coherent, they're all sort of focused into the same direction, same vibration, same however you want to refer to it, that it has this geometric power. It, it's the, whenever two or more of you are joined, it, 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 it yeah. Um, yeah. you can it find the threads through the, through the works of masters and, 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 and uh, scriptures, you know, whether it be, the ancient Vedic, Vedic texts, texts, the Buddhist works, the it it it's in there that thread, there, yeah. and, and that's the, the thread. Had a great sense of that too, of this interconnectedness of us all, and uh, between between humans and also in, in with nature, and that more unified vision um, that uh, the understanding of. Yeah, the, the, the wisdom is there, the knowledge is there, and we're beginning to, to realize that we need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, because, because it, like you said, it's starting to happen in schools down here. It's starting to. There's companies, there's corporations that have their people going for meditation or or quiet time or you know, it it it's beginning to pervade everywhere, and it it you bless their hearts, you that part, that observer part, you can't control it or influence it because it's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. yeah, There's nothing to control. 
there's no you can control a doing a human doing but you can't control a human being because they're just being <laughs> and and uh, and that's the frustration with trying to conquer and control nature is virtually all of nature is just being you know a monkey's being a monkey and a monkey monkeys don't go to school to try to learn how to be cats they just they just sit there and, and they're just and there. And monkeys. We just eat. And and you know I'm over here eating a eating a papaya because that's what I do. And you try to make them be or do something else by scaring them and yelling at them, and they look down at you from the tree and they are amused, and then they're annoyed, and then they then they throw papaya or worse things at you. Like oh, really? oh. you know, I'm, I'm going to be what I be, and you're not going to stop me. And um, uh, that's where that big frustration from those that are honestly believing that control is the way to order. Um, you know, they're not evil. The evil empire, oh, we're going to dominate them. It, it, it's just they think that, that that imposed order is the only way to avoid some kind of disastrous chaos or something. But yeah. it, just, you know. They just don't know any other way, and that's yeah. what it boils yeah. down to. It's that simple, and, yeah. and, and it's... Yeah. When you when you dumb it down and simplify it in that way, then what's the point of fighting against them? What's the point of <clears throat> of defying them? What's the point of because you know, it's it's like dealing with a child. They just don't know any other way. So your approach in order to co- mm-hmm. um, encourage them to learn a new way has to be gentle. And it has to be positive because just like they're trying to wrestle nature to the ground, you can't force them to see things any other way because they've never had proof in their lives, in their own personal lives, that there is any other way. So there's, there has to be a great deal of patience and tolerance and understanding around this topic. And it's, it is. It's much it's like dealing with a, with a child. It, 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 yeah. And and by example too, because that's you want to you you want your child to to really get something. You show them. It's like this. And you just you just you just summed up our whole our whole discussion here. I think. I mean, you've been quiet throughout the whole time, but obviously taking it in deeply. And now at the end, you just wrap it up so beautifully that. Uh, I, I thank you for that. Yeah, she she spent days straightening out her. She spent days straightening out her wrapping paper and stuff up there at the Phoenix Nest because she's really good at wrapping stuff up with a nice bow on top and everything. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's been delightful talking with you all. And you're right; it's just like a conversation with little friends. I read that. Well, that sounds like a bit a bit of uh, public relations writing, but it's it's really true. We're on um, three different continents. Well, like actually, you're still in North America, though, aren't you, Rick? Yeah, but Central America. Yeah, but, but, it, but it's one of the things that annoys the locals about United States folks that come down here is they'll say, "Where are you from?" and and they, the United States people will answer, the Gringos will answer, "I'm an American." I'm an American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 virtually to the last one of them, the locals look at you like. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm an American too. You must be a North American. I'm a Central American, but we're Americans. We have, we 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 all know about Columbus and 
you know, in fact, that's, that's, that's their local currency is Colonis, which is, you know, Columbus. And, yeah, we, yeah, we get it. We're Americans. Yeah. But where are you from again, I ask, <laughs> you know, and if you answer, you know, they say, where are you from? I say, I'm from Texas. They go, they get that. And they just smile and keep mm-hmm. right on talking. But you say I'm an American, they just shut up and look at you. They just have this look yeah. like, yeah. really? Mm-hmm. Ten heads? What? <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I I, I really do enjoy uh-huh. it. And, uh, uh, you know, I talk sometimes these days about, you know, well, when I when or if I go back, because that's the direction I think I'm being pulled, but I haven't got any sort of a definitive anything yet, so I'll just be sitting here talking to people around the planet and telling them how awesome they are, because um, it's an awesome journey that you've been on, sir, and... Uh, uh, and you're right. We do need some peace universities. We need some, I believe we've been taught how to be this patriarchal, stress-filled society. And so we can unlearn that or we can be taught something different, however you want to look at it, the generational thing. Uh, uh, and and Gene has it on good authority that we're well, that all of that's well underway. So, And I think so. I think you're starting to see yep. it uh, in... In mainstream, just leaking in around the edges, but uh, uh, that's mm-hmm. that's where us lunatics come from. Is the fringe? They say something. I don't know. Absolutely. And uh, and then we just kind of grow on you, you know, like fungus. But um, no, I just I surely. I and there are there's, now there. I think there's a fairly large crop of of young people coming along that are tuned into this now. Oh yes. Uh, and that are to be, that are ready for the knowledge and um, and can understand it and appreciate it and, and definitely need something because their futures are on the line. Right. I mean, they they almost can't and, be and swayed they don't have from it. Future. Yeah, they almost can't even be swayed from it. They just like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can tell them yeah. in school all day long, and they just you know shake their heads, which is good because they don't try to convince the teachers. They just shake their heads and go. It's kind of like Coach Pickett. They just they just look at you. You've got ten heads. And they go on and do what they know is right. It's amazing. Well, listen, William. I it, it's been a real pleasure. I want to thank you for uh, sharing your time, talent, and treasure with us. Um, again, the website is peacewriter.org, dot org, and um, uh, lots of interesting uh, lots of interesting material there about radical peace and. Summer snow and and uh, well springs, of course, and uh, so everybody go check it out. There's lots more to this fascinating being than we've been able to uh, discuss. Uh, but well, thank you, Richard, touched, thank you, Gene. Touched on a lot of it. Green beret to um, you know Socrates. It's <laughs> crazy. What a journey! Wow. <laughs> It's been wonderful and uh, also encourage everybody to get by our website at everydayconnection.me sign up for our newsletter uh, off to the right there and uh, that way we can keep you informed about who's coming and and, uh, uh, that sort of thing because now that we're not on the live calendar anymore and get by peacewriter.org and and check out our new friend William because amazing stuff he's got going on there Um, so I would invite everybody to join us for our next adventure episode, our next conversation. 
but until then. To our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Lovely, lovely. Thank you all. Join Jane and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. to ask the biggest question of your life the only question before that question how do you find the perfect ring to ask it with with the incredible selection of diamonds at jared and our price match guarantee you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love visit your local jared store today and dare to be devoted we promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer see jared.com slash price match for details So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.